Uh, turn with me to the 15th chapter of the book of uh, 1 Corinthians. We've been making our way through the book of 1 Corinthians, and uh, we will end our series, uh, Christians Gone Wild, this morning, uh, covering 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. If you don't have your own Bible, there should be a few Bibles scattered in the pew backs in front of you. Today's sermon is entitled, Doctrinal Delusion. Doctrinal Delusion. And as you're turning there to 1 Corinthians 15, I hope you noticed that uh, some of the theology in this video on life and death seems to be a little off, right? Some of the uh, beliefs on why a person gets to heaven or why a person ends up in hell, not exactly right. Uh, And then also some of the thoughts on what happens when I die, what happens uh, after death. Is there hope? Is there life after death? Um, Certainly not the the clearest and the best of theology. Uh, Not only did uh, most of these people on the video struggle with the theology of life after death, but what we see as we turn to 1 Corinthians 15 is that the Christian church, the Christians there in Corinth also struggled with this doctrine. Uh, They also struggled to consider uh, life after death. And they had one particular doctrine uh, skewed up. They, they had it wrong. And it's the doctrine of the resurrection, both the physical bodily resurrection of Jesus, but also the resurrection of Christians from the dead. Uh, so I hope you're there, First Corinthians 15. Let's pray, and then we'll jump right in. Father, I pray that you would give me clear words, that my words would be helpful to you, that... Um, you would speak to me and through me and to these people on this issue. Father, what happens after we die is so critical and so important. And what we do with your son, Jesus Christ, and the good news of the gospel is literally a life or death decision. And so would you help us to understand the gravity of this chapter? And would you help us to put ourselves in the shoes of the Corinthians that we might see if we uh, maybe think wrongly about life after death, about the resurrection, and about eternal life. And would you bring us from life to death through faith in Jesus, I pray, in the name of Jesus. And all of God's people said, Amen. You know, I ran across a recent poll from the Ohio State University, and uh, it was a very particular poll. They wanted to know what percentage of Americans believe in the resurrection from the dead. And what I mean by that is that after we die, at some point in time, there will be a literal resurrection. That is, our spirits will be reunited with our bodies to live forever in new bodies. They wanted to know how many uh, Americans in their poll still believed in this specific doctrine. And what it found out was pretty startling. Only 36% of the people that they interviewed in their poll said yes to this question. And here's the question. Do you believe that after you die, your physical body will be resurrected someday? So according to their poll, only 36% believe in the bodily resurrection of people. 45% said no to that question, and 10% were undecided. Uh, Commenting on this particular survey, one retired Episcopal bishop by the name of John Shelby Sponge, who himself denies the resurrection both of Jesus and the body, had something insightful, I think, to, to say, had an insightful comment on this particular poll. He said this, maybe the old Greek idea of an immortal soul has taken over and the idea of a resurrected body has fallen into disrepute. 
Did you notice what he said? Maybe this old Greek idea of an immortal soul has taken over. What is he talking about there? The old Greek idea of an immortal soul? Well, what we're going to find out is that apparently America as a whole has fallen into the same trap that the Corinthians first fell into uh, so many years ago regarding the resurrection from the dead. What the Corinthians were battling was, was this. There was a Greek philosophy of the day, and essentially a very Greek view of life and death was this. The soul and the immaterial part of the body is good, but the body is just bad. It's useless. And we will live on forever, not in a bodily form, but in a spirit form. And that's what this bishop is refer, referring to, the old Greek idea of the immortal soul. So America, we have apparently bought into what the Corinthians have bought into so many years ago. And so when Paul writes to them to correct them on the significance of both the resurrection of Jesus and the resurrection of the dead, particularly of future believers, he speaks to a culture back then that is very similar to us and our theology and way of thinking about life and death and eternity today. So hopefully you're with me in 1 Corinthians 15. What we're going to do is see uh, three sections. If you're taking notes, Paul kind of moves his argument in three sections. The first thing we're going to see is four arguments for the resurrection. So in verses 1 through 34, this rather large section of chapter 15, he's going to give us four types of arguments for why the resurrection both of Jesus and of believers matters. Why is it tenable? Why can we believe it? Four arguments for the resurrection. Then starting in verse 35 and running through verses 37, he's going to answer two objections. So he goes from arguments for the resurrection to answering objections to the resurrection. He's going to answer two objections to this doctrine of the resurrection. And then finally, we're going to see applications. Applications from the doctrine of the resurrection. Why does it matter today for those of us who name the name of Christ? Why does it matter for how we live our life today that there is a future resurrection? So let's begin. Four arguments for the resurrection. That's where Paul begins in chapter 15. And he begins with a, what I would call a historical argument. He's going to argue from history, from the reality that Jesus Christ really was dead, and he really did come back to life in a new resurrected body. He gives a, an historical argument in verses 1 through 12. And what he's essentially going to say to them and to us is this. If you deny the Christian's future res- resurrection, then you're going to deny, deny Jesus' historical resurrection. Why would you deny that? If our resurrection is not yet future, then Jesus really didn't die, uh, and he didn't raised from the dead. It's an essential part, he's going to tell them, of the gospel that they themselves, and that hopefully you and I, believe. So let's read verses 1 through 12. He's going to give a historical argument. Starting in verse 1. Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, on which you were, have taken your stand. By this gospel you are saved, if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you, otherwise you have believed in vain. For what I received I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, that is Peter, and then to the twelve. After that he appeared to more than five hundred of the brothers and sisters at one time most of whom are still living, 
though some have fallen asleep. Then he appears, appeared to James, then to all the apostles. And last of all, he appeared to me also, as to one abnormally born. For I am the least of the apostles and do not deserve to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace to me was not without effect. No, I worked harder than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God that was within me. Whether then it is I or they, this is what we preached, and this is what you believed. Verse 12. But, but, but if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection from the dead? So he's giving a, a historical argument. He's saying, look, there are people alive today at that time that saw Jesus alive. He's saying, you can go talk to them. You can go knock on their door. You can go interview them. You can go ask them what it was that they saw if you don't believe that there is a resurrection and that Jesus himself has been raised from the dead. Notice what he argues. He says, this is the gospel that saved you. This is the good news that when I came and I preached to you, this is what you believed. You believed that this man lived a perfect life perfectly obedient to God. You believe that he died and you believe that he physically, literally, literally rose from the dead in a new body. You once believed this, Corinthians, so why now would you deny that there is a resurrection? Why would you do that? This is the gospel of your salvation. So this leads us to the first principle for the morning. And we'll be seeing several principles as we work our way through 1 Corinthians 15. But here's our first principle. We must personally... We must personally believe and receive the gospel of the death and resurrection of Jesus to be saved. Did you notice what he said in this section? He said, I preached this good news that Jesus lived for you, that he died for you, that he rose from the dead and he offers eternal life. He offers a future resurrection. He offers forgiveness of sins. He offers that you could be a new creation. I preached this to you, right? Christ died for our sins according to the scripture, but it's an offer. You have to receive it. You have to believe it. Did you notice the the words that he uses here in this section? It says, this is what they preached, and this is what you, what? Believed. This is what you believed. And so there's an offer of eternal life. There's an offer of salvation. There's an offer of forgiveness of sins, but it doesn't just apply to everybody. It's offered to everybody, but who is it applied to? There's an action on our part. We have to receive the gift. We have to believe in it. And so I want to ask you a very personal and yet most significant question. Have you done what the Corinthians did so many years ago? Have you heard the good news of the gospel and acted upon it? Have you received it? Have you believed in it? Have you trusted personally? in your salvation, that Jesus died for you and he rose from the dead, have you done that personally? Because if you haven't, then you're not a Christian. And there's no guarantee of eternal life. And there's no guarantee of a future resurrection. In fact, there is a guarantee of judgment and of hell. And so he reminds them, he uses a a, a historical argument, Jesus really did 
rise from the dead. He moves on from a historical argument to a, what I would call, a logical argument. He's going to argue from logic. Uh, how many of you, just for fun, like to play devil's advocate from, uh, from time to time? Maybe you're talking with someone and you say, well, I, I agree with you, but let me just play devil's advocate. Let me just play the other side of the argument here just to help you think through what's going on, right? Uh, and, and then what you do is you kind of disagree with that person. You kind of get them to think, well, what if? What Paul is going to do here is he's going to play devil's advocate with the apparent position that they had, that That there is no resurrection from the dead. That once you're dead, you're dead and your body doesn't come back from the grave. He's going to say, well, what if, what if, what if that's true? Think about it logically. What if that is true? Then what? And so what he's going to to use is about six logical consequences. He's going to show us six logical consequences of rejecting the resurrection. He's going to use if-then statements to show do you really want to go there, <laughs> Corinth? Do you want to go there, Grace Bible Church, to deny the resurrection? Here is what is true if there is no resurrection. Verses 13 through 19. If, if, if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. That makes sense. If nobody comes back from the dead, then Jesus didn't either. Verse 14. And if Christ has not been raised, then what? Our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. More than that, we are then found to be false witnesses about God. For we have testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead. But if he did not raise him, in fact, from the dead, but if he did not raise him, if in fact the dead are not raised, verse 16, for if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, then your faith is futile you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are, all, we are of all people most to be pitied. And so what he argues is, I'm going to play devil's advocate. Here is what is true if there is no resurrection. And does it sound pretty, church? No, it doesn't sound pretty at all. I want those things to be true, right? I want to know that my faith is in something reliable. I want to know that when I stand up and share with you on Sunday mornings that Jesus is raised from the dead, that I'm not lying to you, right? I want to know that my salvation is certain because his resurrection is certain. So this leads us to another principle. Jesus' resurrection ensures several things. The resurrection of Jesus ensures several things. First of all, it ensures that the object of our faith, that is Jesus, in his life, death, and resurrection, it's reliable. Did you notice what Paul says? He says, listen, if Christ is not raised from the dead, then your faith is what? It's futile. It's in vain. It's useless, right? What, he, what he's saying then is that if Jesus is still in the grave, the faith that we have in him to provide forgiveness of sins in eternal life and reconciliation with God, it's, it's, it's nonsense, right? We are not, the object of our faith is not trustworthy, right? We are jumping into the arms of a dead Savior, is what he's saying. The other day, uh, in fact, it was yesterday, I took my kids to the pool like to go swimming, in particular when it's so cold outside, the kids are getting a little stir-crazy. So let's take him to the pool, right? And we go to the pool, we have a wonderful time. Uh, my second daughter, Piper, 
about two and a half, and uh, she is now starting to get more and more comfortable uh, jumping into the pool uh, from, the, from the side, right? You've been there if you've had kids, and you kind of have to coax them, right? You can do it. You can do it. You can jump into my arms. I say, come here, Piper. Come here, Piper. And she's hesitant. You, you, you see the picture, right? She's hesitant to jump. She wants to jump, uh, but she's scared, right? Because there's some uncertainty there. She wants to jump into my arms, um, but she's not sure. And so, and so what do I do? I say, trust daddy, right? Trust me. I'm going to catch you. I'm not going to let you fall. I'm not going to let you go to the bottom. Trust me. And the more she does it, the more she learns to trust me. Um, in a similar way, what, what, is she, what is she learning? She's learning that the object of her faith in that moment is reliable. I won't drop her. I will catch her. And so the faith that she has in me is sure. It's certain. It's reliable. And what Paul is saying is that, listen, if Christ is dead, when we jump off in faith, we only land in a pool of sin. And we only land in a pool of death. And we only land in a pool of hell. And we only land in a pool of misspent living, is what he's saying. But because Jesus is alive, our faith is, and the object of that faith is reliable. Secondly, not only is our faith reliable, but the truthfulness of our witness is reliable. So let me ask you a question. Have you ever talked with anybody about Jesus? Have you ever had a conversation with anybody about Jesus? Have you ever shared with them maybe what they've done in your life, how he's changed you, how they can accept this good news of Jesus and be born again? Have you ever talked with somebody uh, maybe at Awana, you've talked with the kids at Awana, or maybe somebody at a Bible study, or maybe it's your neighbor, or maybe a parent, and you've shared this news with them. What Paul is saying is that, listen, the resurrection of Jesus ensures that you're not a liar, right? It ensures that you're not just blowing smoke, it means that we can boldly share the gospel because we know Jesus is alive and that we're telling the truth. We're telling the truth. He's alive. Not only that, it also ensures the certainty of our salvation. It ensures the certainty of our salvation because Jesus rose from the dead. It's God's stamp of approval on his payment for our sin. What Paul argues is that how do we know that if Jesus paid for our sins on the cross, how do we know that he really did that? How do we know that it's sufficient? How do we know that God the Father took the sacrifice of the Son on our behalf and that it was well-pleasing to him? How do we know that? Well, what Paul says is it's because of the resurrection, because he's raised from the dead. We know that he paid for our sins because he rose from the dead. So he gives a, an his, a historical argument. He gives a logical argument. Third, he gives a theological argument. That is, an argument uh, that is based on the scripture. So let's read verses 20 through 28. Verses 20 through 28. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through one man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive, but each in turn, Christ, the first fruits, then when he comes, those who belong to him. Then the end will come when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father after he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power. For he must reign until he has put all of his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to, to be destroyed is death, for he has put under his feet. Now, when it says that everything has been put under him, it is clear that this does not include God himself, who put everything under Christ. 
When he has done this, then the Son himself will be made subject to him who put everything under him, so that God may be all in all. He's building a theological argument, and there was a lot there, but here's his point. He's saying because Jesus rose from the dead, we can be sure that we too can have the hope of being resurrected. Because Jesus defeated death, because he had a resurrected body, because he lives forever in a new body, so too those of us who have our faith in Christ will experience the same thing. Christ's resurrection ensures our resurrection, and that gives us hope. There's a story of a famous atheist, and uh, the name of this famous atheist was Jean-Paul Sartre. Maybe you've heard of him. He's a big philosopher. And uh, an interesting story uh, about his deathbed and about what he said upon dying. Uh, Over uh, maybe about a month before he died, uh, this famous atheist declared that he so strongly resisted the feelings of despair with his pending death that he would say to himself, to, to encourage himself, I know that I shall die in hope. He kept telling himself, I know that I shall die in hope. I know that I shall die in hope. Then in profound sadness, he would add these words, but hope needs a foundation. Hope needs a foundation. What he was saying is, is that he didn't have a foundation. He didn't have any hope after death. And what Paul is saying is this, the foundation of our hope is the resurrection of Jesus. So he gives a a historical, a logical, a theological, and finally, an experiential. He gives an experiential argument. He's essentially going to say, listen, both your experience as a Christian, particularly their baptism, and Paul, his experience as a Christian, it just doesn't make any sense if there's no resurrection. It doesn't make any sense if there's no physical life after death for the Christian. So let's read what he says. He begins in verse 29, and and he's going to share their experience. He's going to share something from their experience and their baptism that just doesn't make sense if the dead aren't raised. Verse 29. Now, if there is no resurrection, what will those do who are baptized for the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized for them? So uh, if you read that, like like I did this week, You scratch your head and you say, what's going on here, (laughs) right? What does this mean? Paul references an apparent baptism uh, for the dead. What what does this mean? He neither commends it nor does he uh, he, uh, correct it. So so what's going on? What is is he talking about? Well, basically there are a couple options. Uh, Number one, he could be referring to a practice that he did not agree with. He could be referring to one of the practices of the church that was a wrong practice. They were taking uh, people, Christians who were living, and there were Christians most likely that had gone before, maybe as martyrs, or maybe they hadn't been baptized. And they said, they hadn't been baptized, so I'm going to be baptized in behalf of somebody who died. That, that could be what's going on. And Paul is saying, listen, that's not right. But even, even though that's not right, it wouldn't make sense for you to do that if the dead are not raised. What he could be referencing is this. He could be talking about their own baptism. He could be talking about the fact that when a Christian is baptized, it's symbolic not only of his spiritual death and resurrection to new life, but it's a reminder that though he too or she too will physically die, that he too or she too will physically be raised from the dead. And he could be just saying, listen, when you got baptized, it was a picture of your future resurrection. 
I don't know which one it is. It doesn't matter as much because what he's saying is that, listen, your experience affirms the reality of the resurrection of the dead. But not only their, not only their experience, but his experience too. Notice what he says in verses 30 through 37, 34, excuse me. And as for us, so Paul and his traveling buddies, why do we endanger ourselves every hour? I face death every day. Yes, just as surely as I boast about you in Christ Jesus our Lord. If I fought wild beasts in Ephesus with no more than human hopes, what, I, what have I gained? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be misled. Bad company corrupts good character. Come back to your senses as you ought and stop sinning, for there are some of you, for there are some who are ignorant of God. I say this to your shame. He speaks to his lifestyle as a Christian. He says, listen, I'm going from city to city and I'm sharing the gospel with people and I'm making tents so that the churches don't have to support me and I'm telling the good news and I'm getting stoned and I'm getting shipwrecked and I'm getting slandered and I almost die every day is what he's saying. He's saying, listen, if I'm laying my life on the line for the sake of Christ, if I'm saying no to bodily pleasures, if I'm saying no to just enjoying the, the, the world, notice he quotes, he quotes this philosopher. <laughs> and what's the, what's the common way of thinking? Let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. That's what the pagans thought. We're not going to live forever. Our body's not going to be here forever. So let's enjoy it. Let's eat. Let's drink. Let's party. Let's sin to the max because this life is all we have. And he says, if that's the case, then why am I giving my life away for Christ? It just doesn't make sense. And so he's given us four arguments for the resurrection. And now he moves to objections. He says, here are four good reasons to believe that there is a resurrection, both of Christ and for you and me. But he foresees, like any good debater, some objections, some questions. And so he raises those questions, really two questions that are truly objections. They're more questions that are meant to be objections. And he raises those in verse 35. Notice what he says. But someone will ask. So he just He's making up an opponent, right? There's an, there's an opponent over here. Some of you there in Corinth may say, two, two questions. Number one, how are the dead raised? Number two, with what kind of body will they come? So these are the questions. Well, how's that going to happen? How's that going to happen, right? And if and when it happens, well, what, what's this resurrection body, Paul, going to look like? What is it going to be characterized by? Well, what he does is he takes these two questions and he answers them, but he does it in opposite order from what they were asked. So he takes the second question, verse 35, how are the dead, excuse me, with what kind of body will they come? And then he answers that. So he answers this question in verse 36 through 49. What is the resurrection body going to be like? What is it going to be like? Well, let's read what Paul says in verse 36 through 49. How foolish! What you sow does not come back, to, come back to life unless it dies. When you sow, you do not plant the body that will be, but just a seed, perhaps of wheat or something else. But God gives it a body as he determines. To each, to, and to each kind of seed, he gives it its own body. Not all, all, all flesh are the same. People have one kind of flesh, 
Animals have another, birds another, and fish another. There are also heavenly bodies, and there are earthly bodies. But the splendor of the heavenly body is one kind, and the splendor of the earthly body is another. The sun has one kind of splendor, the moon another, and the stars another, and stars differ from star in splendor. Verse 42. So it will be with the resurrection of the dead. The body that is sown is perishable. It is raised imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. So as it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being, the last Adam, a life-giving spirit. The spiritual did not come first, but the natural, and after that, the spiritual. The first man was of the dust of the earth. The second man is of heaven. As was the earthly man, so are those who are of the earth. As, and as is the heavenly man, so also are those who are of the heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the earthly man, so shall we bear the image of the heavenly man. So there's a lot there. What is he saying? Essentially what he's saying is this. He's saying there's a difference between our present body and our future eternal body. They will be similar, and yet they will be different. He's saying our current body dies. We know that. Our current body dies. It's corrupted by sin. We know that with this body comes sin. It is marked by weakness. And he says it is finite. But then he compares that body with the glory of our future body. He says our future bodies will never die again. He says they are incapable of sin. They are marked not by weakness, but by power. And they are not finite. They will be infinite. He says our bodies, our resurrected bodies, will be like Jesus' resurrected body. That's what they will be like. Then he turns to answer the other question. He turns to answer the first question. He's answered the question, well, what, what, what will our resurrected body be like? He's described what it's going to be like. But how will it happen, right? How is that going to take place? Well, he answers that in verses 50 through 57. Starting in verse 50, I declare to you, brothers and sisters, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Listen, I tell you a mystery. So this is how it's going to happen. We will not all sleep. That is, not everyone, not all Christians will be dead when this happens. But we will all be changed in a flash, in the twinkling of an eye. At the last trumpet, he's describing the events associated with the physical return of Jesus. For the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. For the perishable must clothe itself with the imperishable, and the mortal with immortality. When the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable, and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God, he gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Here's what he says. He says, because Jesus obeyed the law for us, he obeyed God perfectly for us, and because he took the penalty of death and hell for us, and because he rose from the dead, he took the sting of death away. He took the sting, the eternality of death away. And though all of us will die physically, those of us who are in Christ will also be raised physically. 
with a new body. And at that point, then, then we can say, Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? Because we will live forever. One writer by the name of uh, Martin DeHaan, he tells a story that I think illustrates this beautifully. So I'll read his account. He says, Years ago, while I was walking in the field with my two sons, two boys, a bee stung the elder of the two just above his eye. He quickly brushed it away and threw himself in the grass, kicking and screaming. No sooner had I been there uh, to brush it away when it went straight for the younger son, and it began to buzz around the younger son's head. He says, he tried to hide in the tall grass, and he began screaming for help. Dad, help! He says, I picked him up and told him not to worry. The bee had lost its stinger. This particular bee can only sting once. It leaves its stinger in the victim, and it becomes harmless. So I took my son over to his older brother, and I showed him that the little black stinger had stuck right above above his eyebrow. And I told him these words, The bee can still buzz, and it can scare you, but it's powerless to hurt you. Your brother took the sting away. That's what Jesus did. That's what Paul is saying. He's saying Jesus, as our big brother, took the sting of death for us and rose from the dead. He took the sting away. So this leads us to a third principle. We can rejoice in our coming resurrection body. Have you ever thought about this? Do you ever think about this as a Christian? I think sometimes we get so wrapped up in our life here and now that we tend to forget and to think about what God intends and has in mind for us as Christians. Can you, let me just ask you a few questions. Can you imagine a day when your body will never hurt ever again? Can you imagine the day when you will never be ill again? Can you imagine the day when you will never fight any disease ever again? Can you imagine the day where you won't ever deal with the effects of aging? Can you imagine a day when you will never, ever be weak or feeble? Can you imagine the day when you will not feel tempted to sin? That there's nothing inside of you drawn to sin. Can you imagine the day when death itself will never exist? Can you imagine the day when you won't consider the possibility of death because it will be so far past It won't be heard of. It won't be feared. It will be a a, a byword. Can you imagine the day when with your body, with your mind, with your emotions, with your will, you joyfully, willingly worship and submit to Jesus? Can you imagine that day? It's coming. It's coming. For those of you who know Jesus. Paul wraps up this great theological treaties with a a final application. So look with me at verse 58. There's a lot of theology, but he wants us to make sure that it gets to our daily living. Verse 57, 1557, therefore, so I've said all of this about resurrection, Jesus' resurrection, your resurrection, so what does that mean for you now? Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, what? Stand firm. Number two, let nothing move you. Number three, always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord. Why? Because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. So here's our final principle. 
Our future resurrection, knowing as Christians, our future resurrection, it, it, it emboldens three things. It emboldens risk. It emboldens righteousness. And it emboldens relentlessness for Jesus. That is not in vain. Because we know that one day we will physically be resurrected, we'll have a, a resurrected body, we can live life like Paul did. We can say, to live is Christ and to die is what? Gain. To live is Christ and to die is gain. We can give up things in this life. We can say no to temptations. We can say no to pleasures. We can say no to living for what we have here and now. We don't have to be, let's just experience all of life because it's all we're ever, ever going to live. This is the only life you get. If you're a Christian, you get an eternal, physical, bodily life that's forever. So we don't have to be wrapped up in what our culture says is live it up. Live it up now. You're going to die and then you won't have any opportunity to live after that. And Paul says, no, there is an eternal, physical life that you have so you can give your current life away. You can give it away, Right? Why did Paul do what he did? Why did he live such an amazing life, willing to risk everything, to share the gospel boldly, to travel anywhere God, had want, God wanted him to, to, to give any amount of money away, to fight sin with such a ferocity? Why was he able to keep his faith in the midst of overwhelming circumstances? Why can we? Why can we? It's because one day we will be raised from the dead. It emboldens risk, it emboldens righteousness and relentlessness. And so the final word for us today, before we close in a song that speaks of the day when we will be resurrected with Christ, is this. Don't give up. That's what Paul says. Don't give up, stand firm. So maybe you're struggling. Maybe you're struggling to hold on to your faith. Maybe you're wrestling with the truthfulness of it. Maybe you've gone through a really difficult time and your faith is shaken. What Paul says is, There will be a day when you will be resurrected. Don't give up. Don't give up. Keep fighting. Keep fighting. And on that day, on that day, we will join in at our resurrection. And we will sing this song, this taunt. It's a taunt of death. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? One day, if you're a Christian, you will sing that to death. Because death will be abolished an eternal, physical, resurrection life with God will be forever. Let's pray.